You are listening to the Collegiate Ministries Podcast, where we discuss what just, vibrant, and inclusive campus ministries can look like in the 21st century. My name is Derek Scott III. I'm the Executive Director of Campus City Wesley Foundation in Jacksonville, Florida. And I'm Rich Havard, the pastor of the Inclusive Collective in Chicago, Illinois. We are your co-hosts for this season. Let's reimagine campus ministry together. Hi to our listeners, and uh, welcome to this episode of Collegiate Ministries podcast. Today, we're discussing how campus ministries can design spaces and experiences where our students can encounter God in such powerful ways that they feel energized and inspired for courageous, faithful living. The kinds of experiences that stir them up to follow Jesus, to disrupt the status quo, and to help co-create God's beloved community. And we're discussing this um, particularly about this season, this season that we're living in, in the midst of a pandemic with long-lasting implications and ramifications, and in a particular grievous moment concerning racism and the killing of Black people by the police. So in this episode, we are really excited to welcome two friends and folks that are going to help us think through this topic, Stephen Lewis and Dory Baker. Um, two individuals who have vast experience in creating uh, these kinds of spaces for college students and young adults specifically. And so Dory and Stephen, so glad to have you on the podcast today. Um, thanks for joining us. And I uh, would love for you all just to quickly kind of tell us a little bit about yourselves, your social and professional and spiritual locations. So maybe Dory, if you want to go first. Thanks for that welcome, Derek and Rich, and it's good to be with you three for this time. So I am Dory, and I am Senior Fellow at the Forum for Theological Exploration. I reside in Lynchburg, Virginia, and I am ordained in the United Methodist Tradition I went out and served a church in the Chicago area for several years and then was tugged back by my vocational call to do a PhD in religious studies. And there I focused on the emancipatory theologies of women, um, my own white feminist tradition, and also the voices of women from the global south and and womanists from the black African American tradition, mujerista women and Asian feminist women. And in that deep immersion, um, renewed my call to stay within the church <laughs> uh, when I was struggling with all that Christianity and um, you know and and it, and and its expression on this soil has been whiteness, colonization. Um, patriarchy, all of that I was feeling as a 23-year-old ordained United Methodist. And mm. going back and getting my PhD allowed me to stay within the tradition and continue to stretch it. So that's where I locate myself spiritually, always one foot in and one foot out of the tradition that is mine and that I, I want to make better. Oh, Dory, thanks for that. What about you, Stephen? Tell us a little bit about where you are and what you're working on these days. Yeah, thanks for uh, the welcome, and it's great to be with the three of you as well. 
I serve as the president of the Forum for Theological Exploration, better known as FTE uh, amongst friends. And I reside in Atlanta, Georgia. And my uh, spiritual tradition or home, I was ordained in the Baptist tradition. So that's where I kind of hang my hat. And like Dory, um, feeling like, you know, you have to be in the tradition to be able to push it. And you also have to have one foot out the tradition to be able to shape and form what it might become. And so uh, for more than 17 years, I've had the opportunity of working at FTE shape and inform the next generation of leaders who want to make a difference in the world through ministry and finding ways to uh, to push their parents and elders institutions and also to um, walk out of those institutions and build new kinds of uh, spiritual communities that shape and form um, and catalyze their faith uh, to have greater meaning beyond the walls of church into the larger community at large. A couple of things I'm working on. Um, one is really around uh, this new book that Dory and I just, and uh, our colleague Matthew Williams just finished, Another Way, Living and Leading Change on Purpose, uh, came out in January 2020. And we're also, and then also, um, it's now four years now, but I have founded and been uh, cultivating a startup accelerator for faith-rooted leaders who are working at the intersection of faith and social entrepreneurship who are really trying to build um, new kinds of institutions that um, beyond their activism or included as a part of their activism and protest, they build the kinds of institutions that um, inculcate their values and stem even beyond their lifetime to do good in the world um, that works for everyone, not just for a few and so uh, we're in our fourth cohort. Do Good X is the um, initiative. You can also find that online as well. Uh, but we're entering into this next cohort of cultivating the next generation of uh, social entrepreneurs. Oh, it's so great. Wow. Dory, Stephen, thank you both again for being here and excited about the book, Another Way. Um, i flipping through it myself. And um, Rich and I just felt like uh, this would be an incredible opportunity to hear a little bit more about the book itself and the the care process that you all articulate in this book. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about it a little bit um, for us, sort of explain sort of the uh, the reasons why uh, you you two, along with Matthew uh, Williams, decided to write this book, and then also how you see sort of this care process maybe interrelating um, and interacting with spaces for college students and young adults. So any and all of that, um, if y'all want to kind of talk about that. Sure. Well, I get started and then I'll invite Dory. Um, you know, part of it is this idea that, you know, people are built to experience community, find joy in one another, to create a better world out of a deep reservoir of where, you know, our souls reside. And, you know, more than a decade ago, when we kind of started on this venture, um, I was working with young clergy who were trying to figure out how to lead change within their own institutional context. And that became a laboratory for experimenting and thinking about a lot of these ideas. But, you know, as you think about people, people in terms of organizations want better solutions to their leadership development, change management challenges. If you think about people as individuals, they want to lead and make a positive difference in their communities and institutions. Um, but oftentimes, 
Um, they don't always know how best to do it in meaningful ways and don't fully understand that lasting change, uh, positive change, change on purpose requires a kind of collective and coordinated efforts. Um, so, you know, Matthew, our colleague, he writes about this idea that, you know, our models of leadership and, you know, the methods out of which uh, leaders in their community serve, um, you know, that, you know, that we build and mobilize these communities conspire, you know, they drain the very life in which these leaders and communities want to serve. And, you know, it can tend to be, I guess, kind of death dealing, even soul destroying in some realities. And one of the things that he and I and Dory was saying that, you know, there's got to be another way. And so we began kind of hypothesizing, you know, what if we could help people better align their espoused values with their leadership practices? What if we could explore alternative ways uh, of leading, ways that value collective wisdom and action um, that uh, might be possible if change, making leaders gain the tools to imagine and enact an alternative to the status quo? We began thinking about all these things and how we do that. And we know that in doing so, you have to be able to create different kinds of environments and spaces for people to, to see, think, and act differently. It's what we would call metanoia, uh, that, that Greek word behind what we talk about repent. Um, mm-hmm. It really is this idea about how do you shift the way you see, think, and act in the world. And to do that is grounded in these uh, four disciplines that uh, I'll invite Dory's voice in now to share a little bit more about. So... We three, Matthew, Stephen, and I began to, well, we decided that we were going to write this down. Uh, Matthew and Stephen had been long at this work together when I joined FTE in 2008, and they were gracious enough to invite me into some of the reflections after they'd come back from a laboratory where they were trying these things out in Hampton, Virginia, and South Carolina, all over the nation. Um, They were having both these laboratory experiences with young clergy, and they were also like, like if there was a source who was writing about organizational leadership that they were curious about, Stephen would just pick up the phone and call them. And before you knew it, he'd be sitting in their office, having this one-on-one, picking the brain of you know, Otto Scharmer or Parker Palmer, Marshall Gantz and others to try to see where these threads of connection with his own deep ways of knowing were being echoed in the wider sphere. And, and, and I, would, I would say, we got to write this shit <laughs> We got to write this down. This is too golden. It's too precious. Sometimes I even said it's unethical for you not to put this in a place where more people can have access to it. So we began meeting on Fridays and we would begin in silence over the telephone and expansive silence would invite the three of us to breathe, to collect our scattered souls, to show up for each other in this moment, although we were 500 miles apart. And Matthew would end the silence by saying, thank you all. And Stephen would say something like, let me read you these words from Howard Thurman. We do not know each other yet. We have not dared to be silent together. And so began the practice week after week of centering ourselves before stepping into a future that asked something of us. 
And what I just described, that coming together, that grounding ourselves in silence, that is the first step of what we call the care discipline. C stands for creating hospitable space. It's space that is charged. It's space in which we expect something to happen. And it's space in which we grant the possibility that each of us is becoming something different in this space because of the gracious gift of this interaction and the space to be fully ourselves. And so that's the first place where this really resounds for me with what happens in campus ministry and on college campuses. Young adults need spaces in which they can become fully themselves, hospitable spaces to invite all the different nuances and niches of their identities. Like there is so much going on in those years when they're maybe for the first time loosed, set free from the inheritances that were placed on them or given them. And they have some... uh, time with other people their own age who maybe have similar pain points, similar sufferings, similar tragic moments in their lives, and also similar dreams for creating a world, a more beautiful world um, that our hearts know is possible. I'm quoting um, Charles Eisengraf there. So that's the first step in this C. And I've been talking for a while, so I'm going to throw it back to Stephen for A. Well, the next one is asking self-awakening questions. And these are the kind of questions that are really about how do you create an environment to ask questions that allow you to do deeper excavation of your own lives, of your own soul, um, of your own kind of deep history and heritage and identity. And oftentimes what we find when we ask these kinds of questions, they're not only awaken something in the person who's being asked but if you're attentive enough they awaken something in the person who's asking the question that in listening into that in listening in to the person reflecting on the question and hearing their story something begins to stir and catalyze within your own life and you begin to be awakened as well And on college campuses, what we see is that this is like a seedbed, a hotbed for asking the kinds of questions that really matter. Because too often in our lives and our everyday lives, we ask questions that are oftentimes superficial Mm -hmm. and don't really matter. So how do we create the environment that allows us to ask deep questions, real questions about the things that really matter uh, in our lives, the things that we must wrestle with in the communities that we serve, the things how we take sense of like, who am I and what am I called to be in relationship to what's taking place in the larger country, in our nation, and the ways in which we think about the things that we care about as we try to create a more uh, hopeful future. So uh, college campuses are the places where you can really do this in very profound ways, because what you find is that a self-awakening questions is not a question that you just simply ask and you put it down, but it lingers and it stays with you. And if you have time to journey with people over a three or four year period, that, that, that question begins to take residence in one's life and becomes the thing that then may even stir, that may even stir or even focus a person Mm. and change the course of their direction to things to a, to a career or to a pursuit that they never even 
knew at the time, but that was buried underneath the surface and may be the driving factor that may shape the trajectory of their career and their own journey and their own sense of ways in which they'll use their gifts for the world. So I'll pick back up here with R. So you've heard about C, creating hospitable space. You've heard about A, asking self-awakening questions. And now I'm going to talk about reflecting theologically together on meaning and purpose. But I want to underline here that these are not sequential and linear practices that we follow step by step in any rote sort of fashion. And we, we want to be really clear in saying we didn't create these. These are basic ways of being human together. And all we're doing here is providing a framework to help us see what we what we might do if we were in places that were dedicated to the human flourishing of all people, not just mm-hmm. some people, that were mindfully constructed to create, um, you know, space for everyone to flourish. So, yeah are reflect theologically um, together on meaning and purpose means to open up that treasure trove of sacred stories, images, icons, rituals, and practices, which we know by heart, and look at them through a different lens, look at them through a new lens, look at them through the lens of systems of power, systems of structures of of injustice, structures that we may not have even ever seen before because they were the water that we swam in um, for certain people who hold certain kinds of privilege or systems that were the very um, confines of a life you have to beat back against every single day before you get out of bed for those who are marginalized and oppressed in our cultures, right? So, So we're thinking about scripture that we might have heard a dozen or more times preached on Sunday morning. We're just coming out of Pentecost Sunday. We're in the season of Pentecost right now. What does it mean to hear that those winds were a violent wind from God? What does it mean to see that in light of what's happening in our culture on that very Pentecost day, the weekend that fires were burning? Fires, violent wind was rushing through our streets, out, born out of the 400 years of pent-up frustration and deep mm. suffering yeah, of, of yeah. people of color. So what does that mean to see that scripture anew in light of the realities of the day and maybe come away, like Stephen, Stephen just mentioned, when someone asks you a self-awakening question, it might be a question you carry with you for five years or the rest of your life. Similarly, when we join together to think theologically and critically about these stories that we hold, we can find a new lens for seeing them that gives us a vision for our purpose that is that is kind of the life-charging vision of, of, of Jesus, who was a child of immigrants, mm-hmm. born on the lower economic status, you know, lived most of his life agrarian outside, close to the land, was on the underside of empire. Uh, born to an unwed mother. When we start to see our faith through this critical lens, it changes everything, can change everything. Yeah. Yeah, and then the last uh, practice or the discipline, I would say, is enacting uh, your next most faithful step. And it's grounded in this idea that um, discernment is not just for the purpose of discernment's sake, or even, you know, like we think about spiritual direction to kind of hear from God, like um, discerning 
discerning one's call, discerning one's sense of meaning and purpose um, oftentimes has a faithful response to it, right? Uh, there's this idea that, you know, that you're not called just to be, that you're not called just to listen. But at some point, you're called to actually take steps in a new direction um, based off of what you've actually heard or what you've discerned collectively within a community. And so this enactment of the next most faithful step is this idea that even all activism, sacred activism, comes out of a discernment process, but it, it, it shapes the way in which you move forward out of that discernment process. And so um, enacting is this whole idea of putting into actions what you as a community have discerned collectively and what you as an individual have discerned what your role is in that kind of communal enactment of discernment. Um, and then this idea of it being the next most faithful step is this idea that we're not asking you to or inviting you, I should say, to think about everything that needs to take place about what it is entail in terms of what your next career move will be or what it's going to look like in five to 10 years from now. It's asking you, inviting you to say, what is the one thing? Not five things, not three things, but what is the one faithful thing that you can do as a response of what you've discerned? How do you take that next most faithful step? We're not talking about the next most faithful marathon, the next most faithful run, the next most faithful five to 10 years, the next most faithful uh, planning and goaling and ideating, visioning, boarding for the next decade. All those things are important, but we're just simply talking about what's the next most faithful, what's the one thing? What's the two things that you can do as a result of this collective discernment process? And how do you do it in a way that it is faithful in the sense that there is a kind of fidelity to the values that you care about? There's a type of fidelity to the community that you want to serve. There's a type of commitment to the things that you say that you care about and ultimately about the things that really matter. So in, in that sense of whatever, the next most faithful step is moving in that direction. And there's a variety of ways in which campus ministries can do that, um, from thinking about different types of design studios to uh, thinking about other kinds of practices that you can put in place or whatever. But the whole thing is that once you create a community that is discerning its way forward, the next invitation after you've reflected together critically and theologically is to then invite that community to figure out, so now what? What are you going to do? And how will you move forward? And of all the things and think about how you move forward, just think about what's the one thing that you can do next. So you're leading a uh, multi-ethnic campus ministry at a public university in a major city. You're in the midst of a pandemic uh, that won't allow people to gather physically, at least not much or many of them. And you are in yet another flashpoint around the killing of black people at the hands of police. And you're hosting a gathering for uh, this campus ministry for these students. So I'd love to hear you both sort of collaborate and talk about the process you all would use to design the, this gathering using the principles and practices of care. All right, so um, what I was thinking about in this particular question, what it made me think about is this idea, for whom is our campus ministry designed for? For whom? 
Right. What are what are the deeply held assumptions about what campus ministry is, for whom it serves, and what ultimately do we want to have happen? Oftentimes, what I have found that campus ministries, um, particularly the directors, are not the ones who are actually living out those questions, but it's people who's actually funded it way long before those campus uh, ministers have come on on board or whatever. But those kind of self-awakening questions would then kind of uh, invite this idea of how do I create space out of my busy calendar and in the calendars of other people to begin listening to those questions. Right. For, for, whom, is, for whom is our campus ministry uh, designed for? Why does it matter whether or not another African-American person is killed. What relevance does that have on other people of color within the campus ministry for white students in campus? Why does it matter? Uh, Particularly for those of us who call ourselves Christians and following under the founder of our faith, who was a young adult person of color, a lower socioeconomic status, born to a teenage mother, born in the shadows of empire and was brought up on charges of insurrection and ultimately was had a, a, a human public lynching. Why does it matter? And so I would begin this, this, this quest of doing a virtual listening tour, listening to um, a number of different constituents to help me then think about how do I create a hospitable space for the rage of black and brown people, for the guilt of white students, for the complicity of those who've never said anything or want to do anything, want to go with the status quo. Like, how do you create hospitable space in a campus ministry for those voices? How do you bring law enforcement that's on that campus to be in conversation and dialogue with people who are at their wits end? With people who've been complicit, with people who have benefited from the privilege of white supremacy, et cetera, et cetera. To be able to do that well, you have to, I think, you have to listen to these different conversation partners. They help you then figure out how you construct this kind of space that can be tenuous enough, but, but nimble enough to hold the, the different emotional pitches of the different constituent groups that are being in this space together to, to consider it to be a hospitable space for the opportunity to explore. Dory, what would you say? Well, I would just add that when Stephen says he goes on a listening tour, what he means by that is that he listens deeply and carefully. He records what's being said and he sits with it. He lingers with what he heard. Um, it's not just about the act of listening, which in uh, and of itself, I believe is healing. I believe it is healing to be listened to, to be heard. But then when Stephen does a listening tour, he does something with what he hears. And he would take that, what he heard, into the next step of the design process, which would be like, what do we need to do together? Who do we need to bring in? What are the self-awakening questions that these young people would, would, would come alive in light of? And then we create spaces for that to happen. And then, you know, wise biblical exegetes that we are, we craft a way that may be sermonic, but maybe dialogical or maybe ritual Mm. to play with 
all of the wealth in this Christian tradition in a new way. Like play with rituals in a new way that free them from the constraints which the church in North America has given them. And while we're doing that, while we're doing that playful exegesis and that playful creation of ritual, we're giving that away to the leaders in our ministry to do that with us, right? We're not owning it. We're not performing it. We're inviting them into the performative space. And really acting on the on the reality that that is the priesthood of all believers. Let's trust our young adults enough, and we might not get it right the first time. They might they might fail utterly because we will fail utterly. Like we will fail utterly. <laughs> I'm just going to say it straight up. As a white lady, I fail and I fail and I fail again in my efforts to dismantle and be part of the dismantling of white supremacy. But I've got to build my backbone. I got to learn how to breathe through it. I got to keep coming back. I got to talk to my white friends. I got to learn ways to do it. Got to pray the prayer that I harm few people along the way. <laughs> and, and, but, but anyway, so there's that, that reflecting theologically and playing with the deep storehouse of imagery and ritual that we have at our disposal as Christian leaders. And then we do something, we try something. So what is it that we, have, that we might discern together as a little pocket within this campus that might be a next most faithful step to address what's going on in the world around us. What's one E? Are we gonna go protest with Urban Village this Saturday? Um, are we gonna go be part of Black Lives Matters and the Gay Pride Parade? Are we gonna connect up with so many congregations in Chicago that are part of these movements in meaningful, life-giving ways and see, oh wow, the church beat us to it. The church is already there. Let's find ways that church is that life-giving um, source of, of, of good in the world and align with it for a next most faithful step. And then we come back together again. So th th that might get us started. I want to just underline one thing, which is um, maybe it feels like a, a scary time to be doing campus ministry. We've got to do it virtual. There's so much disruption going on. But but I've learned from Stephen that, that disruption is not a bad thing. That disruption, we should, he said to me on numerous occasions, we should be praying for more disruption because disruption is the moment when we can create alternatives to the status quo. And that's what campus ministry can be. It can be these laboratories where people get to live into what it feels like. And you can't just do it once. You got to do it again and again and again. And then you begin to build your muscle. And guess what? Then you learn you can't live without it. So I, I, a question that I think I have, all of this, I, I'm just buzzing on all of these different images and just trying to think about how this works out on the ground a little bit. One of the things that I experienced with my students, and Dory, I loved how you got us to the next faithful step is, is it going to the pride parade? Is it protesting? Most of my students, not most, a good number of them are ready to go straight to E, ready to go to next step. And that, that urgency of Pentecost kind of wants to move them I sometimes think too quickly to next step. Um, that it, and we haven't done the work of grounding. We haven't done the work of discerning. We're just ready to take action. And some of it is the urgency of the moment, right? The, the, the feeling that it is necessary for us to 
not spend so much time in conversation, but to really get active. So how do we work through that tension of, of needing time to listen, to l- listen deeply, but we don't want to quench the fire um, that moves them into action? If my question makes sense, how do we live within the tension of those two things? I never want to pour water on a young activist who's fired up. I want to, uh, I want to stand alongside them. I want to give them a community of support. I want to help them make sure they're safe, right? Safety first. And then I'll circle back around with them and we'll reflect on what happened later. Like, that's okay. It's okay to, to you know, go out and act. Um, and then, you know, if I think hard enough, I might be able to find some times in scripture when Jesus did that. You know, uh, <laughs> and, and then, you know, and then, and then you use that, you use that experience to, to gain experience. And next time you go out a little different and you go out a little more flanked or you go out, you know, you, you, you start running every day so you can build your muscles so you can run farther, stronger, faster, you know, so, so I, I just think that every experience builds on an experience as long as we're keeping them safe. Um, I want to, I want to, I want to feed that urgency. And then there's a paradox. We're following a man named Bio Kumalafe who says times are urgent, says many things, but one of the things we've heard him saying is times are urgent, let us slow down. And I've been reminding my activists community that this is a long haul we're in. Yeah. And so take the time to care for yourself. And if that means doing nothing, Ross Gay writes about the delight of blowing it off. <laughs> you know, like it is a delightful thing to just, you know, sometimes you just got to blow it off and do nothing. Or we know about the nap ministry, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think we are in this time of paradox. Yes to the urgency and, and yes to the slowing down to preserve ourselves so that we can not only do this next week, next month, next year, but over the course of our lives. The change I see opening, the possibility for epoch shifting that I feel like is happening right now may not be complete within my lifetime. That doesn't mean we need we 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 need to see significant change now in light of racial justice, but we also need to stay in this for the long time. So that's about pacing and discernment. So I want to wrap us up here, and uh, for I want to read a a closing thought from another way, a beautiful paragraph um, that I go back to often, and then uh, ask you a, a final question here. So here it is from another way. You all write, new possibilities often arrive in grand visions. We imagine alternatives as expansive portraits of a desirable future. Yet bringing those colorful worlds into being takes place one brushstroke at a time. Grand alternatives require attention to granular details. We're often overwhelmed in our attempts to facilitate change because we fail to shrink the task. Failure to attend to the next proximal action can lead to burnout if our passion overwhelms our capacity to enact the vision of the change we seek. 
So I'll ask you in closing is um, for our campus ministers and others listening who create space and experiences for young adults and students um, who don't want to just keep doing the same old thing. Um, You both had mentioned before uh, the ways we've been doing it aren't working and aren't leading us to the change we we seek, um, who want to change things. Um, What are the the next most faithful steps, the, the next proximal actions that you would suggest broadly um, for those who desire to, to create the kinds of spaces we've been talking about today? Well, um, there are two thoughts, and I'll see where Dory wants to go with this. But um, one, I think, is you know picking up our book, and but more importantly, is really embodying um, our manifesto which I maybe asked you, Dory, to kind of, you know, um, point to that. But, you know, to do what we're talking about, Rich and Derek, is not rocket science, right? Like, these these are age, ancient practices that our foremothers and fathers and brothers and sisters uh, practice. And, you know, I'm reminded of what... uh, there's a book, you know, within, you know, African-American community, um, particularly among intellectuals that, you know, there's a book by an author by the name of Carter G. Wilson that talks about the miseducation of the Negro. And in this particular piece, he talks about how, you know, the book's focuses on Western indoctrinization and also about, you know, kind of African-American self-empowerment. And for me, I think that, you know, campus ministries you know, if they want to do this work differently, then they have to defund and discontinue the miseducation of would-be followers of Jesus. I think that they have to invest in creating kind of care sanctuaries and maroon communities for fugitives of the status quo. They have to put a stake in the ground and invite college students to explore together theologically and critically matters of life and death beyond me, myself, and mine, and things that really matter. And I think that they, you have to be able to form college students in kind of care ways of being that enables them to take the next most faithful step, to decolonize their life from the indoctrinization of Western imperialism and American civil religion, um, fixated on personal piety, the privatization of faith, and a personal relationship with a first century insurrectionist who has been watered down like milk toast to make more palatable. If campus ministries are going to do that, then I think, you know, you can begin doing the type of life changing kind of turning the world upside down and setting people loose into the world. To engage in the politics, the Greek word polis, which is this idea of shaping the well-being of communities, their households, their communities of faith in the larger societies at large. And that if they can do that, then maybe they too, like that brother who found himself in prison on the Isle of Patmos, who had a vision, this incarcerated brother had a vision and said that, you know, that that he saw a new heaven, a new earth, and a tree that is standing in the center that, that is leaves, the leaves from that tree are for the healing, not just for some nations, not just for some people, but for all nations, for all people. And if we can believe the word of that incarcerated brother, 
And if our ministries can embody that kind of value system, then maybe, just maybe, you may cultivate the kinds of leaders that really, truly will turn the world upside down, as we're seeing today, even in our country and around the globe. Amen. Well, for me, it's always um, important to remember to go to the places of pain. And I want to I want to say that whatever faith we have inherited is not wasted. Like the personal piety that I carry with me from having grown up um, in the cultural context in which I grew up, which was in the Southern Baptist South, um, while the, the Jesus I met there has fallen away in so many layers of layers and layers of layers, the, the, the Holy Spark, the God within me, the God who loved me into being has never and will never abandoned me. And so the work of bringing young people from the naivete of their first faith into what Ricoeur calls the second naivete of a more robust faith, a faith that sees the world clearly and and yet still knows there is something more than us. There's something bigger at stake here than my white picket fence and my 2.5 children. <laughs> While those are important things, it's important for us all to have abundance. There's something bigger at work here in and within and through us. We have lots of different ways of naming that and we can trust it as we move people to take one step closer to this kind of um, insurrectionist faith that we're talking about. It's not all or none, and we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. In fact, I've known seminary professors who've said to me that the people who become the best, the most brilliant, the most provocative preachers out of seminary A or seminary B are the people who came in like from places where they were taught to memorize scripture just right as it was out of the KGV. Um, but then because they had it in them, they could work with it. They could become designers of something new out of the raw material they had inherited. And so that's what I would say. I would say, you know, meet people where they are and always, 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 you know, be be like Jesus going down into the lowest places around us, into the places with the, with the, the, the least um, access to material resources because it's there that we can find the real living presence of Christ today and, and align ourselves with him, her, it, they. <laughs> wow. Dory Baker, Stephen Lewis, I cannot thank you both enough for just giving us such a rich conversation. And um, I know that our listeners are grateful as well. So thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us, Derek and Rich. It's been a wonderful conversation to be with the two of you and to be with my good colleague, uh, Dory Baker, and for this conversation. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks, y'all. Collegiate Ministries podcast is a resource presented by CollegiateMinistries.com and it's funded by the Young Clergy Initiative of the United Methodist Church. Production support is provided by Wesley's Revival. 
For more information on building just, vibrant, and inclusive ministries for college-aged young adults, visit collegiateministries.com.